0: This week we're in John chapter 21. We're looking at one of my favorite meal scenes in all of scripture. Um, It occurs on the banks of the Sea of Galilee uh, after the resurrection of Jesus. It's been a rough night of fishing, if you even want to call it that. Um, the disciples encounter Jesus, and the meal is a famous one. It's when Jesus restores Peter by asking him to feed his sheep three times. If you've been in the church long enough, you've probably heard this message, this passage talked about in one way or another, and we're going to dive into it today. Um, But first, we need some context, okay? So context, we're going to go back. To when Jesus first calls his disciples in Luke chapter 5. Jesus is teaching, and people are gathering around him because they're moved by his teaching, and, and the, the crowds begin to form. They begin to press in on Jesus, so he's looking for a way to where he can continue teaching without being overran by the crowds. So he climbs into some boats that are nearby and continues teaching, but then he has the uh, fishermen of these boats to take him out onto the water, and he asks them to throw their nets out on one side. And, Simon Peter replied, "Uh, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing, but you say so, so let down the nets. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish and their nets began to tear. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at the feet of Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. Jesus replies, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. Now I grew up with a, the King James Version, fishers of men. So I'll probably say that a lot here, okay? Catching people, fishers of men. Then they brought the boats in, left everything, and followed Jesus. Fast forward throughout all of Jesus' ministry. He's died, resurrected. He's now, this is the final chapter in the book of John, chapter 21. And here we are once again. The disciples have been fishing all night long. You kind of see Peter's like frustrated if you go read the story. He's like, I'm going fishing. Kind of pouts and storms off, and everybody else follows him. And so they're out there fishing all night long, once again, catching absolutely nothing. Then a man they don't know is standing on the shore, and this man is Jesus, but they're not aware of that. And Jesus once again says to cast their nets onto the other side. Again they listen, they obey and their nets are full, they begin to tear. This is when the light bulb goes off for John, and he says, it is the Lord. And if you look at both stories, you'll see that there's a lot in common, but the one thing that's different in both of them is that in the first story, Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. In the second story, as far as they're concerned, Jesus is nowhere around. They're on their own. The death and resurrection of Jesus changes everything that it changes their lives as they know it. Everything is turned upside down. They're on this roller coaster where everything is being flipped on its head. So much change all the time. But this story is John kind of telling this, bringing this picture saying, there is at least one thing that has not changed in all of this. There's one thing that hasn't changed in all that's happened over these last three years. There's one thing that is the same as when we were first called by Jesus. And that is that we are still called to be fishers of men. The calling for the disciples and the calling for you and I, the calling for all who follow Jesus has not changed. If anything, it has now intensified because the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated and we are all called to be fishers of men. And it's important to understand that that's where this story begins before we ever get to Peter and Jesus having the conversation. This is like a retelling of Jesus, not just Peter failing by denying Jesus three times, but Peter failing to do the the thing he'd been called to do in the beginning and be fishers of men. But what does that even mean? Like if you and I are called to follow in those footsteps, if we're called to be the catching people, fishers of men, how would we even define that? And I think typically we hear that with we like, okay, we're called to convert people, right? To convert them from atheism or whatever other kind of form of religion they have going on, maybe even just legalism and Christianity, but we're called to take them and convert them into authentic Christ followers. And I think, I think that's true, but I think it falls short of ultimately what it means to be a fisher of men. See, fishing is in the, in the um, Bible, the sea, all this stuff is kind of a, a metaphor for what's really happening. The sea, from the Old Testament to the New, is this place of chaos. If you go and you read Genesis, it says that the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters, right? So it's not that there's nothing there, it's that it's chaos, it's evil. The, the sea is kind of this uh, sign of bad, scary things. So here we have people who are fishing for men, they're taking fish out of the chaos and bringing them into the boat. They're taking them from one realm and bringing them into another realm. Paul says this in Colossians. He says that people are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of heaven. Being fishers of men is more than just converting people. It's bringing them into the fold. It's bringing them into what this kingdom community—a community of the King. In Matthew, we see this uh, incredible metaphor as he, as Jesus is talking, he calls the, the church to be a city. On the hill. This is an alternative city. So you're still like the city. You still look like the city. You have the diversity of the city, but you don't have the division of the earthly city because you operate with a different standard. You're still called to be a community of the king, but you look and act and function differently because your standard is not the standard of the world, but it's the standard of the almighty king. And we see that happening at the beginning of our story. We see that when Peter goes to go fishing, that all everybody goes with him. There's Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. They were all together. Peter says, I'm going fishing, and they all went with him. So you've got all of these people on the boat. And if you kind of think about the boat as this alternate ra- uh, realm, alternate reality, you have the personalities all over the place here on the boat. You've got Nathaniel and Thomas. If you think about Nathaniel and his calling to follow Jesus, he's like, what what good can come from Nazareth? And Jesus is like, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, oh, he saw me under Jesus, you are the Messiah. Because Jesus had this, uh, supernatural. He knew what happened. We don't know what happened in the fig tree, but Jesus knew what happened in the fig tree, and that's all Nathaniel needed to hear to follow Jesus, and Jesus even kind of rebukes him. Like, you think that was amazing. You're going to see even greater things than this. Like, kind of. So so you've got Nathaniel who's, uh, let's say, superstitious, right? So he's like over-the-top believing, all right? Over-believing, if you will. Jesus says, I saw one thing, and he's like, oh, that's all I needed. You are him. I'm following you, no question. And this is the same guy in the boat with Thomas, who, this is not a word, but I've uh, heard Tim Keller use it, and I'm using it, okay, who is a substitious, right? Not super, not over-believing, but under-believing. He's the super skeptic, right? He said, oh, you're Jesus. I'm not going to believe until I can touch the holes in your hand. And and the the Nathaniels of the world and the Thomases of the world hate each other. They don't get along. Like, why why do you have to sit and watch the football game in the same spot on the couch every week? That is, You're not controlling those people, right? But you have superstitious and substitious. These people don't, they don't have the same worldview. They don't get along. In the same boat, you've got Peter and John. John is like super rational, right? He thinks through everything. If, if you have a problem, John is gonna do some research and form a committee and figure out how to get things done that way, right? He reasons that this guy on the shore is the Lord. He doesn't have to see him. He reasons by what has happened that that is the Lord. And you've got Peter, who is irrational. He just acts. He doesn't think. He doesn't process. He doesn't plan. He just goes. In fact, if you read the story, it says that he put on his coat before he jumped in the water. Now, John is writing this. So think about the rivalry, like John is saying, this guy is so ridiculous, he put clothes on before he got in the water. Usually you take your coat off, so it doesn't drag you down, but Peter's like, he just got so excited, he threw his coat on and jumped in. So you've got the irrational, just act without thinking, and you've got the overthinker who's reasoning and wants to form a committee. They don't like, the Johns and Peters of the world don't like each other either, but they're all in the boat together. And this is pointing, and look, this is not even like the full story. This doesn't include like Jews and Gentiles, men and women. This is just a few guys fishing in a boat. But you get this picture of what the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be diverse without division. It doesn't mean you all have the same opinions. It doesn't mean we all navigate the world in the same way. But it does mean that we work together to advance the kingdom community that was set forth by Jesus when he died on the cross. But so often, the church has fallen short of this. And just like Peter failing Jesus three times, so often we fail to live out the kingdom community we've been called to live into. How are you doing in that? I had a conversation with a friend, I had a meal with a friend yesterday, and we were talking. We talked about all kinds of things throughout life, and we got to the faith subject. And now this is a long relationship, right? We, we can be real with each other. And he kind of began to unpack that like he believes, he loves Jesus and he, he really would like to go deeper, but he just looks at the church and how the church has taken faith and wielded it as a weapon and has abused faith for power. And granted, I think the media tells that story. I think there have been a lot of famous Pastors and churches that have done that. And I think there's a lot of unseen churches that don't do that, but that is a, a very popular opinion. Just as a as a pastor having uh, unbiased conversations with people, I hear that all the time. The church has just ruined their faith, and people are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I think the truth is the truth is the truth the, the church is the bride of Christ, and there's no perfect church. But I think if the church can do a better job of being this diverse kingdom community, we will begin to see real life change happen. And I think the best, most effective way that we as a church can do that, as we as followers of Jesus can do that, is over a meal. And we see that happen before our eyes in this story today. We see that Jesus invites his disciples in to share a breakfast together. He says, come and have breakfast with me. The truth is, occasionally, people come to the conclusion that Christianity is true on their own. They listen to a Christian podcast. Uh, Business travelers are in a hotel. They open up the Gideon Bible that's in their drawer. You hear of uh, prisoners listening to old sermons on cassette tapes, things like that, where they just come, people come to the faith on their own. That happens. But more often than not, that's not how it occurs. People can tell you about the time they had a conversation with somebody, a a time that someone shared the gospel with them personally in the context of a long-term relationship where people have invested and loved their neighbor, and that's when the door opens to share your faith. And almost always there is a meal or a drink with a table or a bar or something that provides the context for that relational connection. And Jesus shows us what that looks like here as he invites his disciples to come and have breakfast with him. The truth is the table, mealtime, is, is essential to the ministry of Jesus. We've talked about it every week, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but I want to quote N.T. right here. I think it kind of gives us that picture. It says, when Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them A meal. Meal time is a powerful time, and it's a a time when the Celts call a thin place. Do you guys know what I mean when I say a thin place? It's a place where, like the the veil between heaven and earth, is thin. It seems like you can access that heavenly realm a little bit easier. I have, uh, for me, the. I was on the South Carolina district for a while as a youth pastor, and we had the youth camp at Table Rock Mountain. And for me, this is a thin place. There is something about being up there with the campground, and it's always surrounded in prayer every year. There's There's just something about that place that is special. And I feel like I set foot on that campground and I walk into where the the big, like, it's just an open warehouse basically. And you can kind of see Table Rock Mountain behind the the stage and I could just sit there and it's like, all I do is sit and I look up at that mountain and immediately I'm just flooded with the presence of God. It's not even camp time. I'll just be out there and I'll just walk. And it's like, man, there's just something about that place. And it seems like the access to the heavenly realm is just a little bit easier Right? There's no, I don't have a scientific way of explaining it, but it, it, it's what some people before me have called a thin place. Mountaintops are like that for me too. Like if I can have a chance to, to go on a little bit of a hike and sit with a view, there's just something about looking out over God's creation and in those moments. It's just, man, every time the Holy Spirit overwhelms me with the glory and the presence of God. Those are thin places. And when we look at scripture and we look at church history, and even we look, if I can look back at the history of my own life, the mealtime can be that where you sit down and you have a conversation, and it's like there's a thin veil, and the access to the heavenly realm is so much clearer and easier around the mealtime. And breakthroughs can happen. There's relationship building or rebuilding. There's uh, spiritual relational development. You have evangelism and discipleship. The table has room for all of this. And there's these breakthrough moments that happen around the meal. Parenting is uh, really difficult and we've entered into a new season raising the girls, especially Addie Lee, and we're hitting obstacles that we don't really know how to navigate. We've reached out and asked for help in some areas, and there's not a lot of people who are raising girls biblically that can give us advice that have been through the same type of season, and so we've kind of bathed it in prayer, and we're sitting around dinner one night. We haven't had any breakthroughs we haven't had any progress in trying to figure out what's going on and we're she's, she doesn't want to go to school and, and we're sitting that's like a surface level of it but we're sitting at the table and we're talking and i'm asking questions because dinner time is like this sacred place where we're sitting there together the girls can't run away they can we're just sitting there sharing a meal they're stuck there because the hot dogs are too delicious to run or whatever we're eating okay and so we're talking asking questions and natalie begins to cry She begins to tell us a story of something that happened at school we had no idea about. And we can begin to see kind of why there was some anxiety for her wanting to go to school. We can begin to process, we can begin to understand what's going on in her life because of a conversation that was had around a mealtime. The mealtime is a place where breakthrough can happen. There's power. It's a thin place. And we see this happening in our story. Peter has been called to be a follower of Jesus and a fisher of men, and he has failed at both. And if you go in and you read the story, Peter gets up to the shore after swimming to Jesus, and John talks about how there's a charcoal fire on the shore that Jesus has put together. Now, why would Peter include charcoal? Like That seems strange. And if you go and you look, there's actually a charcoal fire only appears one other time in scripture. And it's John once again. And you go back to John 18 and Peter is standing there with some Roman officials around a fire, a charcoal fire, right after he denied Jesus for the first time. We see in twenty one nine, when they got out onto the land, they saw a charcoal fire there with the fish lying on it and bread. John 18, we see, Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, Aren't you one of this man's disciples too? I am not, he said. And now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing there with them warming himself. John is calling us back to that moment. And there's something rich here because if you've ever like royally failed, like no excuses, it was your fault, you did it and you messed up. Like, there's no, you can't back yourself out of it. You can't say anything to take it away. Like, you screwed up. It was your fault. You failed. There are, and your face gets hot. You get flush. You feel defeated. You feel that shame. You feel that remorse. All that kind of comes in. You know how that feels. The thing is, that that doesn't go away. You might feel it for a day or a month or even longer. But much like grief, it like stays around. It doesn't just float away. It's that you can encounter a store or a smell or a sight and that all of those feelings, all of that emotion, they flood back in and you know exactly, you feel all of that over again. (laughs) I, uh, I, had a, I told Lauren this story because I was going to say it in the message, and she's the first person I've ever told that this happened. Okay? It was a time of shame for me, and nobody knew about it. And I was like, I'm just going to keep it this way forever. But when you start preaching, you find out you tell everybody all your secrets. Okay? so I, um, This is a while back, and I'm driving in my car, and I go to turn into a shopping center. And as I go to turn into the shopping center that's a four-way stop and I feel like the car coming this way is about to hit me. And so I'm like watching them kind of hitting the brakes, slowing down. And um, what I didn't realize is there was a crosswalk and there was a pedestrian walking across the crosswalk, but I wasn't looking at them. I was looking at this car. Last second, I see them. I slam on the brakes. I hit them. A human being with my car, okay? All of the like scared what's happening now i when i say i hit them i like bumped them okay (laughs) it was it was enough force that they fell down to a knee all right but they were not injured they were not hurt they got up they banged on my rolled up window because they were furious rightfully so okay like i would be furious too and this person was mad but they didn't call the police they yelled a lot they said some some words. And then they walked off and they went on their way. I pulled over into the shopping center and I just sat there and I was like, what just happened? And I just sat there for who knows how long experiencing all of those emotions, all of the shame, all of the humiliation, that face flushed, that all of that. And you know what was in that shopping center? I don't know if I said this already, but there was a Target there. And so I was in a Target parking lot. And now every time I go to Target, I think about this story. Years, years have gone by. Nobody knows it but me. But I pull into a Target and I think about that story. That's what's happening here. John is saying, look, Peter failed miserably. He knows it. He knows that he just denied Jesus and he's sitting there everything around him is a blur it says that the servants and the guards are talking maybe they're even talking to Peter but he's just staring at the orange glow of the fire that's like muttering in the distance everything around him is blurry he doesn't hear a word they're saying he's just replaying the scenario over and over again in his head man what did i say why did i do that preparing for what happens next like oh next time this happens i'm not going to fail again i'm not going to i'm not going to deny jesus he's he's re Playing it, he's strategizing, he's planning, and he falls short again and again. Think about the weight that he's feeling. Then he's on this boat, and the situation from when it is replaying from when he was uh first called to be a fisher of men. He gets on the shore and immediately smells that charcoal fire. You know, you know, his mind goes right back to that failure, and he's sitting there with the person that he failed. And it says they all, they ate breakfast. The situation is not addressed in that moment. (laughs) So they're eating breakfast. And I feel like, I mean, it it doesn't say this, okay? So I'm kind of projecting in, but but bear with me for a minute, okay? Because I feel like they're all sitting around this fire because that's how you sit at a fire. You sit around it, right? And so they're all sitting around this fire. And Peter's right back there. This is early in the morning. That was late in the day. So the lighting is kind of the same. He's staring at the orange glow of the fire. Everything around him is a blur. The disciples are all talking, having conversations with Jesus. It sounds like muttering in the distance. Everything is the same. Peter is right back there where it all started. Then like being woken up out of a bad dream, you hear, Peter, Peter, Simon, son of John, He like snaps out of the vision, snaps out of being focused in on the fire. Yes, Jesus, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know what I said. You know how I was around that fire. You know how I denied you. You know all of that. And you know that I love you. Jesus once again says, feed my sheep. The question repeated three times takes Peter back to that point of failure again. Peter is grieved. He is broken. I had a class in college, it was like a psychology class, but it was a survey, so you just kind of went through and learned about all these different ways and areas of doing counseling and things like that. And we were in the section where we were talking about group therapy and those dynamics, and we'd spend a couple of weeks studying and learning about that. We walk into the class, and Dr. Williams has all the tables moved against the wall, and all the chairs in a circle, and we're getting like a real-life group therapy session in this group therapy class, right? None of us knew it was coming. We're kind of blindsided, but we walk in and the the fluorescents are off. The lamps are on, much like our uh, life group meeting room, right? And we walk in, the chairs are all in a circle and she sits down kind of in the front of the class and just begins kind of asking questions. It starts out very lighthearted then kind of gets a little bit more deep and a little bit more real. And then there's a girl kind of on the corner in the back and she just like hits that breaking point. And she's broken. She's grieved about, and she just begins to to sob. Everybody in the class is completely silent because it's like very real. Dr. Williams, she picks her chair up and she kind of walks over and she puts it down in front of the girl and just sits there. And it's like just the two of them. I'm gonna sit on the altar, okay? She sits there. It's just the two of them. Eye to eye, face to face. The girl has got her hands in her, she's got all the feelings of shame. Her shoulders are down, hands are in her face. She's bawling. Dr. Williams kind of puts her arm around the young lady and just consoles her as she begins to get herself together. It's kind of embarrassing to cry in front of your classroom. She stops crying. She gets herself together, and Dr. Williams moves her hand down to her leg and kind of gets down underneath her so she can kind of, because the girl's down like this, right? So she's like down on her level, forces eye contact, brings herself up and looks at her and just speaks encouragement, but authoritative truth to this young lady. And it's like nobody is in the room but Dr. Williams and this young lady. And so when I think about the scene, I see Peter and all the disciples sitting around the fire. Jesus hasn't asked the other disciples to get up and walk away. They're all witnessing what's going on. Jesus gets up off his rock and he walks over to Peter's log, right? Just like Dr. Williams, he gets down on Peter's level. He puts his arm around him, gets him to stop crying raises his shoulder, raises his eyes, makes this eye contact, and he has this conversation. After this conversation, he looks at Peter, and he utters those familiar words that Peter heard back in Luke 5. He said, follow me. Peter restored. Life transformed He transforms our life, and he restores us, and it's all over this meal, but the meal's not what's important. What's important is the people that are there. Jesus went to the cross, and he paid for our sins. This is post-resurrection. We are not defined by our failures. Jesus says you can come up out of that. You are redeemed because of what have I have done. You are called to be fishers of men, and your failure does not disqualify you by that. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by those moments. You're defined by my death on the cross. Jesus is saying, come follow me. Even if you have fallen short, even if you have failed, maybe you failed your spouse or you failed your kids or you failed your boss, or or maybe you've just failed at being the church and not being the the diverse community that we've been called to be. Jesus is saying that failure is forgiven because of what I have done on the cross. Come and follow me. Now I know what you're thinking. Yeah, he said that to Peter, but let's go back to Dr. Williams' class for a second. because we're all in there. She's talking to this young lady, and as far as they're concerned, it's just the two of them. But as far as the class is concerned, Dr. Williams was sitting in front of each of us. Those words she spoke to her, we had those same emotions. She was asking the questions and that girl spoke up. We're all thinking about how we would answer those questions. We all were experiencing our own life circumstances, the things we were going through. It's kind of how group therapy works. And so as she is sitting there one-on-one with that young lady, she's really sitting there one-on-one speaking to each individual around that circle. Jesus is looking at his disciples. He's looking at the church that may have failed in the past. He's looking at you and I. He's saying, that thing I did on the cross, it's for Peter, it's for John, Nathaniel, and it's for George and Teresa and Jonathan. It's for each one of us. And it's around Breakfast on a charcoal fire. And what what is the restoration process? What is the command that's given to Peter? Feed my sheep. Peter's restoration, our restoration, is a call back to where this story began. Caring for the kingdom community. And I'm convinced that the best way that you and I accomplish this is at the table. We invite people in to commune with us. We share meals or coffee or whatever it is, and it's relational. Professor Barry Jones writes this, the table is a place where broken sinners find connection and belonging. Despite our best intentions, we all, like Peter, stumble after Jesus. We desperately need people who will journey with us in our stumbling. We need to recover table fellowship as a spiritual discipline. We are called to invite people along this journey as we follow Christ. He did this around food, and I think we should too. But the key, however, is not the food. It's the people that we are with. The kingdom of God is a relational kingdom. This kingdom community that we are called to be a part of is about relationships. And Jesus invites us into a relationship with Him, and He's inviting our neighbors into that same relationship. The key is He's using us to do that inviting. Are you willing? Are you willing to be broken like Peter so that you can be healed by Jesus? saying you are forgiven, you are restored because of what he did on the cross. Let us be a church that is a relational church. Let's pray.